This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all of your hops needs. With nitrogen-flushed Mylar and only $5 to ship any amount anywhere in the USA and great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and homebrewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and bring you their secrets and tips for making better beer. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and trying to come up with a way to check it out. All right, and on today's episode, well, we've got our usual round of feedback. We're going to head into the pub and talk some of the beer business and beer life. Uh, We have some updates in the brewery on a new gadget that Denny's been playing with. And then finally, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. Finally. It's time. That's right. It's time. It's just about time. It's time for the IB results. Yeah, and we have a very special guest with us to uh, help analyze and discuss in this week. We uh, spoke with Mr. Glenn Tinseth, who most of you know is the setting in your brewing software. He's (laughs) the guy who came up with the uh, formula that nearly all of us use to uh, calculate the IBUs that we have in our beer. And he's joining us today to uh, talk about how he came up with the formula, to help us analyze the results of the experiment, and lay some mind-blowing facts on us, huh? Yeah, there's at least one thing in this uh, interview that I learned that I never knew. And now, my faith is shattered. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, right. Before we get into the meat of today's show or the beer, um, we want to let you know how you can support the podcast. You can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and you can click on the Patreon link to contribute whatever amount of money you like, and we'll use that money to fund our new charity, which is... The San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, a.k.a. the place where I adopted my beloved and recently deceased cookie. And so uh, what we're hoping to do for this first half of the year is to raise about $1,000 that we're going to donate to the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society because they need the money to rescue the dogs. And we're going to give it in memory of cookie, courtesy of the listeners of Experimental Brewing. That's right. Uh, other ways you can support us, if you click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link at experimentalbrew.com, you can get a subscription to Brew Your Own Magazine, and a little bit of the proceeds come back to help support the podcast. Or you can click on the American Homebrewers Association link to join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine, a great magazine. And by supporting the AHA, you'll be helping support the hobby of homebrewing and uh, craft beer in general. Uh, a great organization, great cause. You should do it. So uh, does that mean it's feedback time now? That means it's feedback time now. All right. And just a couple of quick pieces of feedback. Uh Denny's uh, homebrew miss article has been making the rounds again that he wrote for the HA last year. And of course we had to have some people give us some smart ass responses because well, you're homebrewers, you're naturally smart ass. That's right. One of our favorite smart asses who's also featured in homebrew all-stars, Jeff Gladish from Tampa commented on Denny's uh, posting of the article. Here are Denny's top six homebrew myths. One, he is just as old as he says. Two, he actually likes Fuggles. Send him some. Three, <laughs> he secretly does decoction mashes more often than batch sparging. Five, those mushrooms in the wee shroomy are not morels. And six, all those posts on all those forums are actually made by bots. Now, well, all of which just goes to show how well Jeff knows me, huh? Yeah, well, except for Jeff did also miss uh, that when he laid out his top six miss, that he missed number four. And so a good friend uh, of the podcast and of Denny, uh, Frank Landgraf, uh, raced back in with a comment and said, number four is Denny's favorite pumpkin recipes. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that that pretty much does it. Hey, uh, speaking of uh, my articles on the AHA website, I should let you know, too, that there's uh, currently one up there about brewing with mushrooms, and uh, they're not the kind that Jeff is supposing. If you have any interest in brewing with mushrooms, head on over to homebrewersassociation.org and uh, read my article about uh, how to use mushrooms in your beer. It's not as gross as you think it is. I don't know. I still think I'd rather have the mushrooms sautéed with olive oil and some thyme and some garlic and in my face. But that's me. Well, that's that's not a bad thing either. So, uh, you have a new project underway, huh? What do you mean, me? It's us, buddy. It's always <laughs> well, us. Well, that's true. That's true. I, I say you because you end up doing most of the work on that one, which is the way I like it. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm glad I took the shorter one. All right, yeah, if, if you haven't uh, been aware, if you haven't paid attention, last week we actually launched a brand new segment of the show uh, on the same podcast feed that's called The Brew Files, where it's a shorter show that's designed to be focused on a particular brewing topic. So we're trying to keep that one to 30 minutes or under. Now, some smartasses out there also said 30 minutes isn't short. Listen. 
our our regular episodes here turn into two hour extravaganzas. Thirty minutes is yeah. short. <laughs> Thirty minutes is short. As, believe me, that's about as fast as we can go. So, but the Brew Files <laughs> is brand new. It is out there. The beer is out there. And last week's episode was focused on uh, analyzing two of our favorite recipes that we do: Denny's Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter that everybody's praised them for in the past, and one of my favorite saisons that I do, my Springtime in Amarillo. And we walk you through exactly why we made the decisions that we made, how we developed the recipe, and what we think of it, and how, where it's gone since we've made it. The Brew Files is a little different than uh, than this show. Uh, we kind of have a lot of wide-ranging topics in this, and the Brew Files is going to be focusing pretty much on styles and recipes and uh, pr- pretty much a single focus per show. Yeah, well, and so we already had some commentary come out because as we're recording this is actually the day when the episode appears. Uh, but on Reddit, a user there, MEU223, said, I really enjoy the format on the drive-in, hearing you both just settle in for what felt like a quick conversation. Look forward to hearing this breakdown into individual topics. I love the main show, but it feels like this is a great way to organize short overviews on parts of the brewing process or breaking down a recipe versus the two-hour shows. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. Did you send him his check yet? Uh, yeah, all two cents. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so anyway, anyway, uh, check it out. It'll be on uh, all the podcast feeds where you can find Experimental Brewing, or you can go to experimentalbrew.com and uh, download the brew files directly from there. Yeah, and don't forget, leave us feedback, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find us, uh, helps the podcast get more attention, which in turn allows us to be able to do it more often. Uh, but also, if you have ideas, suggestions, things that you want us to cover, either in this show or in the brew files itself, feel free to drop us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Yeah, and uh, speaking of dropping us a line, it's uh, coming up on time for another one of our question and answer shows. Uh, these have proved really popular with you guys, and we really have a lot of fun doing them. And we've actually learned things by having to do research to answer your questions. So that's actually cool for us, too. So coming up in episode 36, which is, uh, what, two short months away, uh, mm-hmm. we will be doing another Q&A show. So you can either... Uh, Email us your questions, or you can use our new high-tech voicemail line to leave your questions there. And, Drew, what are the addresses for those? All right, so you can email us questions at experimentalbrew.com. I mean, hell, you can leave us a message anywhere that you find us, and we'll make sure that it gets into the show. Yeah. Or, if you want to have your voice featured in the show, and this is actually a really cool thing, if you guys remember from the last episode when we did the Brew Year's Resolutions, you can leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. 626-765-1-ALE. And eventually, I'll memorize that number, so I won't have to have you do it all the time. Mmm. Numbers. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, send in your questions for the Q&A episode. Uh, ask us anything. Well, you know... Well, we'll answer just about anything. We're crazy. You know, it can be about beer. It can be about, uh, you know, your life and why you're not. Uh, oh, no, I'm not going there. Don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah. Give you an idea. Size 11, medium to the left. <laughs> That's more information than I needed. Thank you. Uh, so uh, time to head over to the pub and have a beer. Or talk about the beer life. 
Well, I think I'll just join you with that idea. All righty. I'll meet you there in a minute. We'll be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. back everybody we've made our way over to the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa and we're having a couple beers and talking about the beer life what are you drinking there drew i am drinking a Celador ales fire gold blend one uh Celador ales is a brand new uh, brewery that just opened up their tasting room in my neck of the woods or not too far from my neck of the woods in la senses but they are a wild and sour beer brewery that is doing the whole wort production off-site, pull it into their facility and doing all the aging on bugs and in barrels and on fruit and everything else. And so this is their uh, sort of really approachable, bright sour with a very large dose of citrus. Wow, that sounds kind of nice. What kind of citrus? Uh, in this case, this is just uh, oranges. Uh, they, their Fire Gold 2 has tangerines in it. But I, actually, I think I like the oranges better. I like the nose on the tangerine one, though. And uh, we'll also mention that uh, this is one of uh, what seems to be a new trend in breweries who uh, brew offsite or have their work brewed for them and then uh, ferment it and blend it and age it. And uh, we're going to be doing a show coming up in the future where we're going to where we'll uh, focus on several uh, of the breweries who are doing that. We have one here in Eugene called Ale Song. And, uh, you know, there's the rare barrel down in the Bay Area. So uh, it's a happening thing, and we're going to be talking about it. In the meantime, I am sitting here with a glass of Pyramid Snowcap. This has been one of my favorite beers for at least 20 years. This is the 38th anniversary edition of the beer, and it's it's just stunningly good. It's a, a dark beer with a low roastiness character, so it doesn't really stomp you. Uh, there's a little bit of sweetness to it, but it's just perfectly balanced by the hopping. Uh, a truly delicious beer. Uh, obviously, isn't going to be available everywhere, but if you see it, try some of this year's Pyramid Snowcap. You will like it, I think. So, uh, what's happening in the beer world that we need to talk about? Well, okay, so the first one is our good friends at Anheuser-Busch have teamed up, apparently, with everybody's favorite coffee maker, uh, Keurig, a.k.a. Green Mountain, and are working together with them to develop some sort of adult beverage-based pod system. So, if you remember correctly, last year, Keurig tried to launch a thing in partnership with Coca-Cola called the Keurig Cold, with a K, because marketing. And it was this ridiculous machine that cost like 300 and some odd dollars, and you could make an eight-ounce glass of Coke from a pod that cost you, I think, a buck per pod. 
So it was more expensive and less convenient and produced less uh, soda than what you could do, go and get at the grocery store for the same convenience factor. Oh, wait, no, actually, wow. for less convenience factor. <laughs> A perfect but, product. Yeah, I mean, that product bombed so badly that Keurig actually pulled it from the market and refunded everybody who bought the machine. <laughs> so now... That's great. Now, ABI and their wonderful branch, uh, ZX Ventures, the same folks who went and bought... Uh, Northern Brewer and Midwest Supplies uh, have teamed up uh, teamed up, and have announced that they're going to make some sort of adult beverage system. Now, nobody, no real details are out there. You know, is this going to be like, here's a Budweiser pod, put it in your brewer and you get a glass of Budweiser out the other side? Or is it designed to be like, oh, look, we're going to make a Smirnoff Ice type thing. So, you know, you get like a cocktail type thing out of the system. No details other than they've apparently spun up a company with 50 engineers working on it uh, to try and make a new machine. And apparently they are going to start with the Keurig Cold as the as the baseline. And I'm just trying to think, why? Yeah, exactly. Why? Uh, it's hard to say what the market will be for that. Yeah, I mean, like, I like, the, I like there are some people out there who are doing robot bartenders where they have systems that are set up where you tell it, hey, I want a Manhattan and the system does all the correct measuring and pouring and produces a cocktail at the other side. But I mean, that starts with like actual bottles of booze and everything else. And it's just really going, Hey, look, I'm an automated measuring and stirring device. That's yeah. kind of cool. That's nifty to the, to the tech nerdy side of my brain. This is just puzzling. <laughs> puzzling. Indeed. Let me just mention here in passing that uh, in one of the articles about this uh, new machine, it mentioned that uh, ZX Ventures had bought into Pico Brew, and they were going to be part of this also. Uh, we checked with our friends at Pico Brew, and they are denying that anything like that has happened or ever will happen. So uh, if you happen to read that article, just uh, skip over that sentence. Yeah, but uh, we we quickly, quickly checked because it's like, what, one of our sponsors has gone to the dark side? No. <laughs> but it, it didn't make any sense to us, so that's the reason why we reached out and, and made sure. So there you go. Rest assured. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, what else is going on in the beer world? Well, the other one is also with our good friends uh, at Anheuser-Busch, S.A.B. Miller. We own every beer brand known to mankind, or just about. Uh, the part of their whole deal about being able to merge SAB Miller and ABI together was everybody expected that they were going to have to sell off some of their brands, you know, because even the most, uh, business friendly government is not going to allow one company to effectively own 90% of the beer market. Right. And, uh, so the first shoe dropped, I think this last week where it was announced that Asahi is actually going to be picking up. Pilsner, Kell, and five other of the SAB Miller brands uh, to help with the whole transition to allow the merger to happen. So in some ways, this is actually kind of a good thing, I think. Uh, if you're a big fan of Pilsner, Kell, and I know a number of people out there are, there's been a lot of uh, lamenting as to perceived uh, decline in quality under the tenure of SAB Miller. And the hope is that by passing it under to Asahi, that Asahi actually, as a big corporation that's focused on making lagers, actually seems to treat their sub-brands with a fair amount of respect and sort of gives them free reign to be able to you know, run with quality and not with numbers. So I know a lot of uh, Pilsner or Kell fans are out, out there are really kind of excited that maybe 
maybe this will be a return to what they perceive as the glory days of Pilsner or Kell while still maintaining sort of the wide availability of it. Yeah, you know what? And uh, I've heard people say that. I have to admit, it's been a long time since I've gone out and bought any Pilsner or Kell. Do you know if it has taken a quality dip? Well, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, but I do know a couple of folks who are extraordinarily passionate about Pilsner and were extraordinarily passionate about uh, Pilsner or Kell as well. And to a person, they've all felt like there's been a real decline. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So So if uh, any... Now, the question is... Is that an actual decline or is that, you know, hey, my favorite band is sold out type decline? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if any of you guys out there have uh, been buying Pilsner or Kell through this whole period and uh, you think you've seen the quality change, let us know what you think. Uh, We'd really like to hear. uh, And uh, hopefully if it has gone down, it will be getting better. And if it hasn't declined, then it'll just keep being great and maybe even better than it has been, huh? There you go. And uh, finally, uh, there's been uh, a great increase in hop production in the last year, right? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. The USDA released the hop crop report uh, and for 2016, and particularly in December. And what was interesting, this is the time of year when all the hop farms are planning for next year. But mid-December's report actually showed a sharp drop in the yield happening per acre, while at the same time, the overall amount of hops being grown in the U.S. climbed for the fourth straight year. Uh, So (laughs) uh, it was, uh, I think they said the 2016 hop harvest increased by 8.3 million pounds for a total of 87.1 million pounds. Uh, And if you remember uh, where... Uh, where we were before a couple of years back, that is a hell of a lot more hops being produced than, than were uh, until recent times. And it's down below what the actual overall yield was predicted to be. But the reason for it actually seems to be that where the hop market has been moving is less demand for some of the big hops, you know, some, some of those big bittering hops like CTZ or Warrior, those sorts of things. Uh, and those are also having some problems due to various hop diseases that are going on. They're all hop diseases are always going on, by the way. They, yeah, it's just right. a thing. Uh, and so de- decreased demand for those, and those yield very well per uh, per acre. And more increase for all these funny new hops with all these big fruity flavors and big essential oils that show lesser yield per acre. So in other words, there's more land being devoted to hops and everybody's buying the hops, but the land is actually producing less hops per acre than they did in the past. And I think I think that uh, that can be partially attributed to the fact that there are now hops being grown in so many new places. I mean, you know, it's been concentrated here in the Northwest for many years, but mm-hmm. now you're seeing uh, hop farms in uh, New York and Massachusetts and, and Michigan is really coming on strong. Right. I, so, I still want to get, I still want to have the hops that are being grown in my hometown in Apopka, <laughs> Florida. Yeah. Right. Uh, that, that's amazing that they can do that there, but that's, that can be why that there are more acres being grown, but maybe the yield per acre is less because some places like Apopka, Florida are not going to have the yield that you get uh, up in Yakima. Yeah, but those are going to be some wet hops. 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, and let me just say that, uh, you know, I've been up to uh, hop harvest in Yakima the last few years, and uh, there is no indication that uh, the uh, crop is anything but robust. So uh, don't worry, folks. There's going to be plenty of hops for everybody this year. Yay. Yay, indeed. Okay, how about we uh, head over to the brewery now, and I talk about uh, my new gadget here. Oh, yeah, Danina's toys. All right, let's do yeah. it. Okay, we're going to finish off our beers, head over to the brewery, and we will be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, we're in our favorite place in the world. It's the brewery. And we're here today because Denny apparently has a new toy that he wants to tell you all about in order to make more beer more faster. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and for some of you, this won't be new at all. And uh, for some of you, uh, maybe you've heard of it, but don't know a lot about it. I have uh, been playing around with the grain father uh, and... Uh, I should mention, because we've mentioned this before, uh, unlike some things, this is a loan. This was not a gift from the company. There is uh, no quid pro quo going on here. Uh, I get to play with it until I'm done with it, and then I send it back to them. So, what is the Grainfather? Okay, if the, you haven't seen the Grainfather, it's uh, an all-in-one brewing system. Uh, kind of a vessel within a vessel. The outer vessel uh, has a heating plate on the bottom. Uh, basically acts as your mash tun and boil kettle. The inner vessel has a screen uh, both on the top and the bottom, and that's where your grain goes. It uh, has a pump and a temperature, an electronic temperature controller. So you can set your temp, you can do step mashes if you like. And basically, uh, it, it, it's kind of like a Herm system. Uh, it uh, recirculates the entire time uh, that you're brewing to maintain your mash temperature or to do step temperatures. Uh, when you are done with your mash, you lift up the inner basket, uh, set it on a couple of... Uh, braces that are on the top of the outer uh, boiler part. You let the wort drain through it. You pour your sparge water through. When you're done with that, you remove it completely. Crank up the uh, temperature on your boiler and sit back and let it boil. Uh, it comes also with a counterflow chiller. 
so that when you're done brewing, uh, you can run through the counterflow chiller as you transfer the wort to your fermenter. Uh, I found it to be a really, really uh, interesting unit um, and works well once you learn what it wants. Uh, for me, the first thing that I discovered was uh, you want to put your hops in a bag, uh, especially if you're using pellets like I do. The pump has a nice screen over the input to it to keep gunk out of your pump. But what I found was that that screen gets clogged up really, really quickly when you're trying to uh, recirculate with a lot of pellet hops in there. Supposedly, uh, especially at the end of your boil, uh, whirlpooling will help. Uh, I'm whirlpool impaired, and I didn't get that to work for me in the least. Uh, so I eventually went to the bag. That worked great. The other thing I had to do was adjust the efficiency of my recipes. I generally figure them at about 75%. Uh, I was down closer to 65% with the grain father. Again, that may be partially due to my technique and the learning curve. But both that and the hot bags are really minor things. And in general, it's, it's a really nice unit. Uh, not nearly as automated, of course, as something like the Zymatic. People ask me, you know, how do I like it compared to the Zymatic? And you really can't compare them because they are two very, very different brewing systems, different philosophy, uh, different ways of using them. Uh, but it's a, it's a great unit. A uh, couple things that uh, are going on with it that uh, I haven't had a chance to check out yet. They have a new controller with it. The one that's there has, uh, that they have been using is, uh, is an analog controller where you uh, manually set your temperatures uh, and uh, you know, turn the pump on and off. They've come out with a new controller that right now you can get for a $150 add-on, or uh, you can uh, get it built into your grandfather uh, for an additional $150. And I hear by about the middle of the year, it's going to be the only controller there, and they'll just raise the price of the unit. Uh, it's uh, going for um, $890 now with the new controller. It makes it 1040 or you, if you have one already, you can buy the new controller for 150 bucks. Uh, the things that the new controller does is you can set a delayed start. So you can set the whole machine up and then uh, tell it when you want to start, uh, you know, when you wake up in the morning, when you get home. It has Bluetooth compatibility, so you can monitor your, your brew or even change programming on the fly from your phone. Uh, the has a Connect app that uh, allows you to save recipe settings with four mash steps, four different boil addition timers with alerts, and uh, alerts you when it's boiling and when you heat your sparge water and how when to start heating your sparge water, how much to heat. Uh, it uh, has more intelligence when it comes to temperature control. One of the uh, problems that some people are having with the current grain father is that it's easy to overshoot your mash temperature, and uh, the intelligence built into the new controller senses when you're getting close and and moderates the temperature. Um, it you know the only thing 
that I found was a real downside for the grandfather was that it does take a long time to get to a boil. The uh, let's face it, this was made by an Australian company, and uh, they have used 240 volts down there as opposed to our 120. So at 120 volts, it can take a while to get up to a boil on the thing. Um, so having the ability to uh, not only program in a start time, but give you an alert when it actually does hit a boil and stuff, is, it sounds like it could be real helpful. So uh, that's, my, that's my quick take on the grandfather. Uh, if it's a system that fits the way you like to brew, then it's a system you ought to take a look at. Like I said, it, it doesn't replace any of the other systems out there. It's a thing on its own. But, uh, you know, if, if you prefer a more manual system, then you want to take a look at this. Oh, and I guess the one thing I forgot is I, it will make batches up to about eight gallons. So the, the capacity is there also. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it sounds like it's in that perfect uh, medium area between the Pico the, or the Zymatic, you know, with all that control versus, you know, kind of the more manual, hey, I've got a turkey fryer in a pot that we tend to, right. that we tend to start with. So it, this might be a good sort of midway point if you feel like the Pico is, you know, too hands-off for you, the, but you still want some of the sort of labor-saving and attention-getting-away type uh, features of the Pico, that this might be a way to get into that medium point so you can still feel a little bit like a craftsman without, uh, you know, feeling like you've sacrificed all of your art, like some people do. Yeah, and, and, you know, it is an electric system. You can use it indoors. A lot of people do use it indoors. Uh, I know that I'm too much of a slob to try that, and uh, that has been borne out by the fact that every time I lift the inner basket out to sparge, I spill wort everywhere. But uh, for people who are more coordinated than I am, uh, brewing in your house is definitely a possibility with it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no spilling on your shoes, please. <laughs> yeah, really. So that's my uh, that's my quick review of the Grainfather, and uh, I definitely urge you to check it out if you think that uh, that that's going to be the kind of brewing system that would be good for you. Where does he get all these wonderful toys? Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> so uh, time to head over to the lab now and talk about our IBU experiment. I believe so. All righty. We're going to close down the brewery here, shut down the grandfather, wander over to the lab, and we'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. 
we've made our way over to the lab, and it is time to finally talk about the results of our IBU experiment. Uh, we've been we've been telling you this was coming for a long time, and uh, we just kind of had to coordinate things so we could get Glenn in on discussing it, and we finally did. So we are ready to drop the results on you. Uh, anything? <laughs> right. Anything you want to say before we get into the interview? Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, that I was really excited that we managed to pull this one off. And just as a reminder to everybody, yeah, none of this would have been possible without the support of Nico from NicoBrew.com, who provided us the hops. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But also uh, our sponsors at the AHA, who also helped sponsor out some of the costs of this and made this thing a possibility. So, yes, and especially you, Igors, we really, really appreciate all the effort that you guys went to to brew all these different beers and pack them up and send them off. Um, it, it's just, uh, what can I say? We, we love you, man. Yeah, it, it, trust me, folks, without our Igors uh, being as awesome as they are, none of this happens because... This is a lot of work. Yeah, and let me just also reiterate our thanks to Nico at uh, NicoBrew.com for providing the hops for this and for uh, getting them sent off to YCH to have them tested before they went out. Uh, You're awesome, dude. Thanks again. So uh, we're going to start off this uh, little segment by playing an interview that I did with Dana Garvis, the owner of Oregon Brew Lab here in Eugene. She does... uh, beer analysis for both commercial breweries and home brewers and uh, agreed to help us with our uh, experiment. So I talked to her uh, about her background, her lab, and uh, exactly how she was going to test the beers. We'll also have a video of the process that she went through uh, on our website. So you can uh, check that out also. It's actual uh, science. (laughs) Yeah, really actual real science not citizen science from a real scientist so uh, sit back relax uh, enjoy this interview with dana and we'll be back in a few minutes i am here at oregon brew lab talking to dana garvis the oregon brew lab scientist <laughs> founder founder accountant uh, yeah, chief cook and bottle washer marketing manager yeah et the cetera, whole thing well thanks for your time today and thanks for uh, analyzing the beers for us for our experiment so why don't you talk a little bit about your background and yeah. how you ended up here with your own lab yeah um well i got my degree in chemistry at U of O um, and immediately went into industry uh, testing water, which um, was very boring. Um, (laughs) There's not a whole lot of exciting stuff about water, especially wastewater or stormwater. You're dealing with some pretty nasty, nasty stuff, Um, stuff you don't want to drink for sure. And uh, that lasted for about six months before I was ready to move on and find a different line of work um and i was browsing craigslist saw an ad for a brewing chemist and i thought i like beer i'm a chemist (laughs) and it has water in it It has water (laughs) i'm very versed in quality control and uh so i kind of i was like well there's not very many breweries this is in 2006 Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, there's not very many, oh, I'm sorry, 2010. There's not very many breweries in Eugene. And so I looked on all their web pages to see who's hiring for right. this position. So I applied to um, Ninkasi's posting via Craigslist, via their uh, online, their website posting, and then I also went in and dropped off a resume in person. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very adamant, I want this job and you're going to give it to me. <laughs> um, and like most people that work at Ninkasi, I didn't think that I had gotten the job. Um, and even when I first got there, when they were like, yeah, come in, we want to talk to you one more time. Um, and everyone was talking to me like, hey, like congratulations. And I was like, oh, did, did I get the job? Is that, is that me? And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, we forgot to mention. You got it. <laughs> so um, I spent four years, a little under four years at Ninkasi. Uh -huh. um, I built their laboratory twice, once when I first got there, and then a second time when they did their rebuild or their mm -hmm. remodel in 2012. Um, and I also spearheaded their sensory program. And when their sensory program got too big for me to handle, because I was doing both the chemical side and the human side of beer testing, mm -hmm. um, we hired someone else from Firestone to come in, and that's Jared Clark, uh, to come in and take over the sensory part. Um, and basically spent four years learning about beer, learning about beer chemistry, working on my own palate. When I started, I was blind to diacetyl. Now I am not, <laughs> which is really, well, it isn't great, um, because before I could drink bad beer and not yeah, know. Right. But now, now I can tell. I've, I've found that I have a hard time tasting it, but I can always feel that it. Mouth feel, yeah. That mouthfeel, that slickness right. is a huge key for me. And yeah. it's one of the first time, it's that first indication, wait, maybe I should pay attention. Mm -hmm. Like something else is not right. Um, and so that slickness is what initially got me starting to identify diacetyl. And if you drink it enough, if you work and practice enough, you can get rid of those blind spots. It just yeah. takes a lot of dedication and drinking not great beer. You have to know what you don't know right. so that you can find it. Exactly, exactly. It's very zen, I guess. It is a little <laughs> bit, it is. Um, you know, but a little drunk. <laughs> yeah, right. So then what led you to set up your own lab? Yeah, so um, at Ninkasi, I was the scientist that did the yeast for ground control, their space mm -hmm. yeast. Um, and you know, when you're in a company like Ninkasi and you do something like shoot a rocket full of yeast into space, collect it and then brew a beer out of it, there's not a whole lot of upward movement beyond that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, how, how do you top that? And that was sort of when I had the inklings of Brew Lab coming. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I really started to notice was I opened up the Ninkasi lab to other brewers. I said, hey, if you need anything tested, let me know. Uh, Windmere does this up in Portland. Mm -hmm. I think Breakside does it also. Um, OSU does it for the Corvallis breweries. And so I was like, you know, all these people are trying to get testing, but no one, but there's not really a solid place to go. You can go to White Labs, right. but you're going you're gonna to pay high dollar for that. Um, and I just got flooded flooded with samples from everywhere, not just Oregon, not just Eugene. <laughs> um, and the big wake-up call, the really big one, was a small brew, brew pub in Michigan had somehow made a growler its way all the way to Eugene to wow. get tested. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Um, and that was pretty much the point. Right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. Uh, leaving Ninkasi was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do because... 
I mean, it's just a family. It's sure. A, you know, it's a family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, not so mafia esque, but it's right. very, it's very interconnected, and it's a cushy job. Mm-hmm. You know, the great benefits, um, fun place to hang out. It doesn't necessarily feel like work. Right. So leaving was very scary, but um, I had a lot of support. Um, other other people within the Ninkasi uh, family had also left to pursue kind of what they were already doing, mm-hmm. but for a more uh, consultation side. And so I left, started Brew Lab, got a loan for my workhorse, the Anton Parr. Right. Um, and have been actually successful ever since. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> that is so and, cool you know, to hear. My, yeah, my big um, mark for this is, you know, after my very first year in business, Brew Lab netted $27. <laughs> yeah, but you're positive. I know. I know. I ran a business for 30 years and only did that once or twice. You know, and, uh, and that, that felt real good. Cool. That, um, and I have over, now I'm at over 120 clients nationwide. I have one home brewer in Canada, so I can say I'm international. <laughs> a multi-neighborhood corporation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's been... Awesome. I mean, I really, you know, people are like, oh, you must have a really good job. I "I have the best job. I get to hang out with brewers. I get to hang out with some of the most down-to-earth people who really care about their product. Mm -hmm. And people who come to me care about their product. Right. Um, There's someone who really wants to make sure their quality is nailed down. Sure. They really want to make sure their alcohols and IBUs are accurate on their labels. And I think that that's a really good mark of a great brewery is someone who's, who's seeking out ways to improve. Right. Right, they so. care. Yeah. So that's sort of my my that's, background. That my is so story. cool. That is so cool. I'm I'm really happy to hear stories like that, uh, especially people who succeed in the brewing industry without opening a brewery. It's uh, hard. Uh, it's real hard, as you may know. Yeah, it is. I mean, Drew and I kind of say that we were probably the only two home brewers in the world who have absolutely no interest in ever opening a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, no thanks. Why ruin a great yeah. hobby? Oh, yeah. Know? Yep. So tell me a little bit about what you're going to be doing with these beers. You're going to be analyzing them for IBUs yes. for us. And what's the process for doing that? So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to acidify a little bit of this beer. And what that does is it makes the humulones in there and the isohumulones mm-hmm. in there um, ready to move around. Mm-hmm. So it sort of breaks them away from the rest of the beer. Okay. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to add an organic solvent mm-hmm. on top of that uh, called isooctane or 224-trimethylpentane. Um, and shake it up real good. Right. Um, and if you want, I can actually take a video of it emulsifying. Oh, would you really? Yeah. That would be so yeah. cool. We'll put okay. it on the website yes. for people. Perfect. I'll do that. So then I emulsify it, which means I'm going to take these two phases that are um, unable to combine, right. kind of like salad um, <laughs> oil and vinegar. Oil and vinegar. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to shake it or mess with it so hard that it's going to become one substance, mm-hmm. and that's called an emulsification. Um, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to break that emulsification by spinning the samples around really fast in a centrifuge, mm-hmm. um, pulling out the beer, but leaving all of those isohumulones in the solution, the okay. organic solution. From that solution, I can put that into a spectrometer, shoot a laser through it, mm-hmm. and the more humulones it is, there are, right. the less amount of that laser is going to make it through the sample. And so we can determine the quantity right. of isohumulones in the beer sample. How cool. It is cool. That's very neat. I, I spent my first year of college as a chemistry major. Okay, so some of that. And I, I retained just yeah. enough to have a, yeah. some inkling of what you're talking yep. about there. 
That is. And so one of the issues that um, we're having in the professional brewing, the co the commercial side, not professional. That's that's a little rude, maybe. But on the commercial side of brewing, is that um, isohumulones don't necessarily mean your perceived bitterness, right. which I think is what you guys are sort of testing uh -huh. here, is to see, you know, what's the difference between our IBUs and what we are actually tasting, right? Because your perceived bitterness is is including other things other than isohumulone, right? Yeah, and one of the things that we are looking at is like, you know, we, when Drew put all the recipes together for mm -hmm. people to brew, he used Beersmith to calculate, yes. you know, the expected So does he, IBUs. what's the, do you use Tinset or? I, I, you know, I'll have to ask him, but I think he did use Tinset. Okay. Uh, I got to meet Glenn a year yeah. or so ago. Oh, very I cool. was down, at, uh, down in Arcata, California for a big uh, beer festival, and uh, he teaches at Humboldt State. And came up to me and uh, and introduced himself and uh, we're actually hoping I corresponded with him several times since then to tell him what we're doing mm -hmm. with this and uh, I, we're hoping to actually have him on the show to help us analyze the results oh, that we cool. get. Oh, cool! Very cool. So yeah. So but what one thing that that we're looking at is the variation in the results mm -hmm. because as we know people's processes and mm -hmm. you know the way they brew and stuff like that is going to affect this. Oh, yeah. So what we want to do is find out when people use brewing software to you know calculate how many IBUs they're getting mm -hmm. in their beer are they really? Yeah. You know, right. when, it, when is an IBU not an IBU kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things that I find um, you pick up extra IBUs is when you're not able to cool down your wort mm -hmm. before fermenting. Right. Um, you're going to still be isomerizing those humulones and right. going to be adding And, and that's, a, that's an experiment that we have uh, scheduled for the future is, you know, because so many people are into whirlpool hops mm -hmm. these oh, days. Yeah. What we want to try and do is somehow get some idea of how many IBUs you pick you're, up you're picking up there, mm -hmm. you know, as you whirlpool yeah. those hops, say like at 160 or 180 or yeah. whatever. Well, and that's an, another good point is if your gravity is higher, those sugars are going to inhibit that isomerization. Right. And so, you know, the higher gravity your final product, the less amount of IBUs you're actually And you have touched on a very interesting thing. Um, the, and the main reason I was in correspondence with Glenn mm -hmm. is because I had talked to John Palmer, who has a theory um, that comes from Tom somebody up at OSU. Shellhammer? Yes. Shellhammer? Yes. Yeah. That it's not the gravity and the sugars themselves, but the increased amount of proteins from a higher gravity wort. I would not be surprised. Coat the hops and cause the reduced utilization. So it's not the gravity per se, it's the, the other things that happen when you have a higher yeah. gravity beer. Interesting. Uh, Glenn doesn't buy that at all. Well, you know what we could do um, is put on the horizon maybe, because I do have the ability to test for protein. Oh, really? We could see if there's You're some on. sort of yes. correlation between higher gravity beers with protein uh, and, and higher, yeah, that's right. We could we could brew the same wort at two different gravities, yes, and then look at the protein levels in each one of those yep. in terms of and then determine IBUs yeah. afterwards. Oh, you are on. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, Let's do it. Oh, this is oh, this is cool, Dana. <laughs> we'll yeah. have to. 
God, when I, next time I see you, I will bring you one of our official Igor pins. We have these Ooh. little pins made for people who help us with our testing. And you have just earned yours yes. with those ideas. Oh, good. So. Yeah, well, and like I said, I, um, I often feel like in the uh, commercial side of brewing, um, there's sort of this disconnect between... Um, being in production and then being a hobbyist or a home brewer. And I do feel like there's much more in common that we all have as a home brewer, as a commercial brewer, um, than they let on. Yeah, right. And I feel like home brewers kind of get the short end of the stick occasionally. And so I am actively trying to <laughs> engage with home brewers because they're a really big part of our community. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at how many commercial brewers came from the homebrew community. You look at how many beer trends get pulled into the commercial world yes. from the homebrew world. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, we have been talking to Dana Garvis here at the Oregon Brew Lab, and uh, we will be getting the results for these beers she's analyzing for us. And we'll also post a link to her website. She does a lot of other kinds of things besides just IBU analysis. And uh, if you're looking for a place to get your own homebrew analyzed, I highly recommend you get in touch with Dana and send it in to her. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm so excited to work with you guys in the oh, future, we, too. We are, too. I just love your ideas. So it's going to be very cool. Yeah, let's keep it up. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Cheers. All right. That was Dana Garvis from Oregon Brew Lab talking about the analysis of the IBU beers. Uh, and uh, big, big thanks to Dana for helping us out here. And uh, she had some great suggestions for future experiments. So I'm sure that we're going to be hearing from her again. And uh, we're going to put a link to Oregon Brew Lab on our website. And if any of you guys out there want to have your beers tested for any number of things, uh, I would recommend you contact Dana and uh, have her do it for you. Yeah, I'm going to say I love the fact that we have now entered the time of brewing history where you, I, any joker with, you know, just a couple of dollars and some beer can actually get access to some big time tests and, you know, get a better idea of exactly what it is that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, her lab is in a garage attached to her house, but that doesn't mean that it's not a real lab. She had some serious equipment there, and she knows what to do with it. There you go. All right, well, hey, and now, of course, now, of course, we get to the to the big, the, the big part of the episode, because this was the part that actually took us the longest to arrange. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're very, very happy to be able to talk with, you know, while we were looking here going, hey, you know, we got all these IBU numbers and how do we make sense of them? And, you know, what the heck is an IBU anyway? And how did these calculations come about? It naturally occurred to us that, well, maybe we ought to ask the guy who, well, made the formula that we all use. Yeah, I was uh, down in Arcata, California a couple years ago for the uh, Humboldt Homebrew Fest. Great event. And uh, I was sitting there selling books, and a guy came up and introduced himself to me, and it was Glenn Tinseth, and I was thrilled. It's a guy that uh, I've, I've read his writings, I've used his formula for years, it was, it was great to finally meet him. So uh, we called him up and asked him to comment on the findings and uh, talk a little bit about how he developed the formulas and his background. So, go grab yourself another beer, unless you're driving, 
And uh, we're going to listen to uh, the interview that we did with Glenn talking about our hop experiment and uh, his hop experiments. Okay, it is finally time to announce the results of our IBU experiment. And uh, we have a very special guest with us today in order to do that. Uh, you've probably heard his name before. Uh, we're talking to Glenn Tinseth, the man behind the hop calculations that you probably use. Hey, Glenn, thanks for joining us today. Ah, it's fun to be here. <laughs> Good. I hope you'll be saying that uh, 15 or 20 minutes from now. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and experience with home brewing? Okay, um, I started home brewing, uh, I guess, mid '80s here in Humboldt County. Um, the first beer we did was a, a stout, and we entered it in the uh, Humboldt County Fair. And at that time, you could watch people's faces as they tasted your beer, and. Three out of the four judges refused to taste it, and the third <laughs> tasted it and spit it out. So, <laughs> feedback. Yeah, and, really. And, and yet you harsh. continued. <laughs> yeah, well, what that did is it accelerated the switch to all grain brewing, um, and from then on, it just was, was easy to continue because everything turned out really well, and uh, and it was cheap way cheaper than extract, and that was the perfect um, combination of things, good taste and cheap um, for a college student. So do you still brew these days? I haven't homebrewed in ages, but during the summer I'm a fill-in brewer for Mad River Brewing Company in Blue Lake, California. So whenever they have someone on vacation or just need an extra hand, um, I'm trained up on the system and they can call me and... Uh, my wife says it's not really a job. She says it's beer camp. I, 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 it is a job. <laughs> yeah, uh, she so, should try it. So instead of substitute teaching, you're a substitute brewer. Yeah, it's kind of, I, you know, I do a bunch of different things. I teach at the university, teach chemistry, and I also have my own tax uh, consulting business. It's about to wow. go the hype year here. Yeah. yeah, I'll bet, man. That's a, that's a real renaissance man kind of thing. Well, it kind of balances. I teach full time in the fall and just a tiny bit in the spring, and when the you know when the the tax season's hitting, uh-huh. and then summers for, are free for both of those businesses, so that leaves me time to go and brew. God, that sounds great, man. Oh, there you go. Well, now I guess here's the the obvious question. You know, I think most homebrewers these days, you know, if they they know your name because it's sitting there in all those uh, recipe formulators that we use, you know, Beersmith and ProMash, and and it's right there, just that little button that says which hop formula do you want to use. So I guess really the question is, what made you go and decide I want to have my hop formula? Okay, um, this goes back to. Um when we were poor and trying to pay for our mortgage on our farm. And uh, we, my wife and I both started little businesses. And the business I started since I was in the middle of Oregon hop country at that time was to <clears throat> take cops, vacuum seal them, and uh, sell them um, mail order. Uh, at that point, Fresh Hops was the main hops supplier in Corvallis, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, no, no fault of his, but he was, sending them out in Ziploc bags, and uh, I, coming from, you know, working on my PhD in chemistry, knew that oxygen was the enemy, 
And so I got one of those cheap uh, food savers from Costco and modified it to use less expensive bags than the ones you have to buy for it. And um, published a little uh, uh, catalog. And at that time, most of the online folks were using a forum called rec.craps.brewing. Oh, yes, I remember that. Kind of dating ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I kind of gently got information out, and people started writing for that catalog. And I decided I wanted to have not just a catalog, but a lot of content. And so I wrote a few articles. I was writing for Brewing Techniques at the time as well, and uh, included this hop research I had been doing on the side. Um, and, you know, just put it out there, and then it just sort of took off. I mean, this is 94, I think. And I had, you know, spent half the time when I should have been working on my dissertation in the library reading articles on uh, hop usage and utilization. And luckily I was able to get a lot of data from there and also from the brand-new brewing program at Oregon State. They dumped a bunch of data on me, and then I did quite a few brews um, wherein I traded work in the hop lab, the USD hop lab there, in exchange for using their instruments to do some testing. And that's how it came about. It was kind of like a value-added proposition for my hop business. Um, and then it had a life of its own, obviously. Well, and it definitely goes to show that homebrewers have always kind of been eager to have more of that scientific information because uh, obviously I think right now we're in sort of a renaissance of that as well between you know, us here on this podcast and uh, Brewlosophy and a couple of others who are out there trying to do homebrew science, but uh, you had the actual tools back in the day, it sounds like. Well, also, most of the people on those early forums had internet access, which meant you were most likely either a defense employee or a university uh, student or employee. And so lots of engineers and scientist types were really pushing, you know, pushing the limits of what was out there. And frankly, what was out there was Rager, um, and a totally wrong uh, hop utilization curve that you know just kinetically couldn't be, um, and that's one of the first thing reasons I tackled it because I knew it wouldn't be that S-shaped curve that he had. So uh, my question is, how did you make the beer that you analyzed to get these numbers? Uh, was were these just like you know small samples you you put together in the lab, or did you actually brew batches, or how did that work? Yeah, I, I did full batches in my you know it was a Sankey keg on a on a jet burner outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, Although most of the data came from the literature. I mean, I had data from Asahi and Guinness and Sierra Nevada, and like I said, all the data from the OSU Hop Lab. I just brewed my own homebrew batch to confirm that there was no differences between these big commercial-scale brews and, you know, my little 10-gallon brewery. Um, once I had the, the curve that I had put together, I wanted to make sure that it matched from a homebrewer scale. And so I... I basically would do a 10-gallon batch, <clears throat> take samples all along the way, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, you know, and then do another one at a different gravity, just enough to confirm what I was seeing in the published literature. And you ended up with a lot of beer to drink after that, too, huh? Yeah, yeah I, had, uh, I had lots of friends. <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting. Go figure. That's really interesting to me that the differences between your homebrew system and uh, the commercial systems that the results you were looking at were drawn from, uh, that there really were so consistent between the two. 
Well, it, you know, it's the shape of the curve that's consistent. Um, you can there's a couple of factors in my equations that you can change, and I think they'll take into account things like boil vigor or uh, kettle geometry, right. um, that sort of thing. Um, and so the numbers might rise or fall, but the the utilization um, geometry of the curve should stay about the same. Got it. Well. I was going to say, I think maybe we ought to take a step back and and walk people through, like, when we're talking about these calculations, what exactly the curve is and what the ver- various factors are that you saw affecting the creation of the, uh, or sorry, the various factors that you saw that ended up with these numbers that we now have. Right. I think most of us would guess how much, you, how many ounces of hops you add and how long you boil them for are probably going to be the biggest. Um, Most of the literature put as number two uh, the the gravity of the boil. Um, And so those are the ones I stuck with just because you can just start listing things off and not stop for five minutes of other things that might, um, you know, pH, just go on and on and on. But those are the two big things, How, how much hops you added and how long you boiled them for. And what was the uh, average gravity of the boil? So let's uh, let's get into talking about our experiment now. Um, the purpose of this really was uh, for us to try and get a handle on uh, how accurate the estimates homebrewers are getting of uh, the IBUs in their beer. And uh, in order to do that, let me just run through the basic experiment here for our audience. We, uh, we started off by getting some hops from uh, Nico Lukoff at Nico Brew. Uh, Nico, before we sent them out to people to brew with, sent them over to YCH Hops to get them analyzed so that we would know exactly what the AA level of those hops was at that moment before they went out. Uh, all these different brewers brewed a pale ale, an IPA, and a double IPA sent samples back to me, and uh, we had them uh, analyzed here in uh, a lab in Eugene and uh, compared those to the predicted results uh, in the recipes. Is that about it, Drew? Did I forget anything? Well, and then also a portion of the beer was sent down to my neck of the woods where we then did hedonistic testing. Right. And we had, we had tasters rank both their perceived bitterness and the perceived enjoyment that they had for that particular beer. And I should mention also that uh, our uh, our lab person, Dana Garvis at Oregon Brew Lab, uh, is also a trained sensory analyst. And so uh, she made her own guesses about what the IBUs were in some of these beers, which were very interesting. So uh, time to get into the results. Yeah. So and we provided Glenn with a copy of uh, the results that we had from everybody. Now, when we did the calculations, uh, all three of the recipes were effectively the same recipe, just scaled up in terms of uh, amount of ingredients. So like the pale ale was 10 pounds of uh, domestic two row, one pound of Munich malt and a half a pound of crystal malt for a five and a half gallon batch. Uh, and then it was bittered with CTZ, uh, had additions of Centennial and Cascade in order to you know, round out the hopping profile and make it very kind of traditional American craft brew hopping. Uh, and then the double IPA and the IPA were the same gen- general bill, just bumped up in strength. So when we did the calculations, according to the things that we have out there, uh, it, all out of uh, my beersmith software that I was using, 
the American Pale Ale uh, calculated out when we used Glenn's formula to about 32 IBUs. And when we stepped through the eight entries that we had Dana uh, measure for us, uh, they ranged uh, actually, I think, a, f uh, a fairly wide margin. Uh, lowest IBU measurement that we had was actually 20 IBUs. And the highest one that we saw in the pale ale was 43 IBUs. And the prediction uh, was uh, for uh, 31.8. So there's quite a range there. Yep. And so, and when you average out all the measurements, it comes in, it comes into about uh, 32 IBUs, which is dead on what the calculation said it was supposed to be. Yeah. That's averaged across the eight batches. And that's, that's when you average them though. But man, there's some real outliers yep. there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and, noticed it's, um, 34% on the high end and 25% on the low end. I mean, that's that's a huge swing. Yeah, yeah, it really is, man. I mean, you know, and we have we have one guy who got 43 IBUs out of a prediction of uh, about 32 and one guy who got 20. So, what do you think, Glenn? What what could account for that kind of swing? Um, I, I would bet it's um, maybe boil bigger. I mean, are we talking flowers or pellets here? These were all pellets. Okay. Well, that throws my calculations out the window. It was just lucky that that came even close. Because um, no one and none of the data I, I used had anything to do with pellets. Um, oh, so now that's, so that's I, interesting. I have a huge disclaimer there that you're, you're on your own. <laughs> now, yeah, well, see, that's now that's interesting, though, because I think almost everybody that I know of blindly uses these formulas, and almost all of us use pellets these days. So, yeah, hmm. it is. It's back back in the day, you know, pellets were definitely not the quality of what they are today. Um, it's, a, it's a huge difference between what we used to be able to get and what you can get now. Wow. Well, that, that's that's in, very very interesting, and I'm sure that that's something that uh, a lot of people out there didn't know, just like we didn't know that either. So, so I guess they, also, you know, pellets disperse so quickly, and there's no real uh, worry. As much about boil vigor and or or protein coating. You know, when flowers get coated, that's kind of the end of their being dissolving the humulones. And but pellets are dispersed immediately. And uh, so I would I would bet the differences here are probably boil vigor and kettle geometry. Okay. Yeah. And well, and looking through the results as we as we step through the other beers. You know, in the IPA, you know, the formula, for, uh, your formula predicted out uh, 58 IBUs, uh, roughly. And there we saw a very similar sort of spread where we saw one person with 37 IBUs measured. And I think we our highest was uh, 66. Uh, yeah. And, and then in Again, the double IPA. Again, 30% spread up and down. Yeah. 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 Well, and then in the double IPA, which is the one that I figured would be the one that showed the wonkiest results, uh, I think that actually bears out because uh, the double IP had a predicted IBU of 75.9, I believe. And on the low side of that one, we had three scores all the way down in the 40s. We had a 44, a 45, and a 46. And then the highest was a 71. So nobody actually topped up to the, or went up and over what the calculation was, which kind of makes some sense, right? Because right. as you're getting out there along the gravity uh, bounds, the curve is going to become more and more, uh, off and so it was really interesting to see that there were also trends where you were saying okay well it's probably you know some of its boil vigor or kettle geometry and you know we had 
consistently the brewers who were on the lower side in each of these categories were the same brewers. So if we had somebody brewing the exact same uh, beer, all three beers, we saw each time that they would be on the low side. Um, Right. Where I think the one that cracks me up is one of our one of our brewers, and I don't know why. You know, his IPA came in at forty three IBUs uh, as measured. His double IPA, which has a lot more hops in it, came in as measured as forty four IBUs. <laughs> maybe he's just wow. like maybe he's just like eating the hop pellets on the side, and not putting them into the beer. Yeah, there you go. No, you're not. You're not supposed to chew the hops. They're supposed to go in the kettle. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, this gets back to one of the things I often tell people who want to get down to the hundredth of the IBU. You know, you're going to get within 10% if you're lucky. And you mm-hmm. can see that we didn't necessarily even get within 10% on these three batches because um, some of them are off by 30-plus percent. Right. Um, so my main take-home message to brewers is just do what you do and be consistent. And if you use Rager or you use my method or Garrett's method, just be consistent. Use your same boiler and your same pot, and any changes you make, take notes and see if you like it. Um, because at some level, the number becomes meaningless, right? Right. The, your, well, ta- your taste buds should be your guide. Which well, I was going to say, in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and in a lot of ways, it seems like everybody talks about IBU. I think because so many brewers are scientifically minded, they talk about like this number has an absolute meaning, right? You know, it's like Kelvin and in truth, IBU is sort of a weird kind of not really a real thing. It's just kind of a stakeholder, you know, something for you to kind of center around because I mean, nominally IBU as measured in these, in these anal- uh, analysis is, yeah, you know, the amount of absorption at XYZ nanometers of light, you know, in a formula prepared in a certain sort of way, and that supposedly correlates to, or that carries a close correlation to the amount of dissolved isoalpha acid. Now, of course, modern dry hopping throws that off, but that's a whole other story, which is why we didn't have people dry hop these. Um, well, but and it really also, does... it, it, we picked the, the biggest peak where light absorbs for the thing you're looking at, but there's other things absorbing that same wavelength of light that aren't mm-hmm. hop-related. And so you, the IBU measures all the things that absorb that light, not just the thing we're interested in. And so it, it is affected by other things, too. <laughs> wow. You mean chemistry is not just like a simple, straightforward thing? Well, when we do basic research, we eliminate all these complications, you know? <laughs> like life. <laughs> you know, Assume you, that you have an elephant that's round and yeah, in a vacuum. Yeah, you're getting into the reason why uh, my experience as a chemistry major in college only lasted two terms, and then I switched to English. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing I found interesting is um, the sensory numbers that uh, what was her name? I'm sorry. Dana? Dana. Uh-huh. Um, we're pretty spot on for the pale ale and the IPA, but really consistently higher than the IBU number for the double IPA. In all, in all of them but one, I think, her perceived bitterness was higher yeah. than the measured IBUs. I wonder if maybe that could have a, a bit of confirmation bias to it, you know? 
Uh, I mean, she's, yeah. she is trained to be able to recognize IBU levels, but maybe there's something about saying to yourself, uh, this is a double IPA, so it's got to be higher. And I'm not casting aspersions on Dana here no. by any means. Uh, no, yeah, she, she mouth, got a lot. Mouthfeel issues there, and you, just straight alcohol issues. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, and yeah, let's be fair. I mean, Dana Dana got pretty close on a fair number of these and got way closer than I ever was. Oh, yeah, I know. Man, I, I, I could not have done it <laughs> yeah. at all. I saw her numbers and went, geez, man, that woman has some skills. Yeah, and, yep. we'll, and we'll have all this published uh, on the, the website when we get to it. But uh, I did think it was interesting that in you looking at her sensory bitterness, and how it tracks you're you're right that like the ipas she was pretty uh, pretty spot on and then when we get to the double ipas the numbers actually aren't really all that different away from the ip uh, the ipa levels you know even though the measured ibus are a little bit different right you know those are a little bit higher so it was kind of interesting that even moving up into the double ipa where you'd expect to kind of have a little bit of that confirmation bias of oh well you know this has to be hoppier you know the numbers were actually still fairly close to what she was pulling for the the ipas right right Right. So, Glenn, do you still have your website up? Yeah, I do. I mean, I haven't really maintained it. <laughs> well, but the, the basic info is there. Yeah, it's realbeer.com slash hops. Okay, great. And we'll we'll put a link to that on our website, too, so people can go uh, take a look at your work. There's, there's a lot of dead links there, but since it's kind of one of the early versions of a beer website, I've left them because it acknowledges some of those early uh, founders. In fact, I still have the code for the original hot calculator when it used to be a, a CGI bin script that ran on the oh, server, no. which completely, <laughs> completely disallowed now. <laughs> but the C code is there if you want to steal it. <laughs> Drew, yeah. I, I'm sure that being a programmer, you can appreciate that. Oh, yeah, no, but uh, I don't want to get anywhere near C these days. <laughs> it's well documented though <laughs> lies there's no such thing there's no such thing as a well documented C program that doesn't have a comment of the code <laughs> is the comment <laughs> I, I, but I, I found you. JavaScript much more uh, uh, friendly when I switched over <laughs> yeah so Drew well, anything else we need to talk to Glenn about here well yeah I was going to say so Glenn if you were trying to tackle uh, creating the curve and the formula again today. What do you think that you would uh, you would look for, and what might you change? I mean, we already talked about part of it is, you know, a good portion of your data is all based on whole hops and not on pellets. So I, that right. seems like one obvious change. Sure, I, I would definitely do uh, work with pellets. I would probably uh, probably like to bring in some pH playing around. Um, in the boil and see what mm -hmm. happens there because it's such a big factor in, in chemical reactions. Um, and, you know, boil vigor and kettle geometry, you can't really do that much about, and there's so many different variables that mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know where to go with that. But I would definitely track, maybe, you know, get jump on the bandwagon with everybody and look at protein levels, but I, I, I bet that protein tracks pretty well with gravity. Um, that would be my my initial guess. Yeah, you know, and I had... It's hard, 
I had separate to- those out. Yeah, and I had told you that uh, John Palmer had been talking to uh, Tom Shellhammer up at OSU, and and their theory is that it is protein levels that that make a difference. Although I, I have yet to see what kind of uh, evidence they have to back that up. Well, one way to to do a experiment here would be to track the unisomerized alpha acids and see how quickly they get into solution, um, and then. The protein effect is kind of irrelevant if it's if it's a physical effect because once those uh, unisomerized alpha acids are in solution, they just need to isomerize, and the protein's not going to get in the way of that. Um, but then, if it takes a while, then maybe it is a blocking action by the protein. Right. I don't know. I'm just I'm not a biochemist. What do I know? <laughs> Well, well, hey, you know, uh, it, it's something to look into, and and maybe uh, we can get a hold of Tom and ask him about it too. Well, That's and I'm kind of curious. So attractive to deal with the simple stages. You know, I'm a physical chemist, and kinetics is right, you know, down my alley. And uh, <laughs> I, the article you sent me recently that kind of confirm, confirms the shape of the curve made me very happy because I, the whole time I was waiting to be proven a fraud for the last 20 years. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> well, uh, for, fortunately, everybody's uh, too busy enjoying their pints, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, here's a question that I have. So, Obviously, when you were doing this, you know, IPA was still kind of a, you know, just a, a thing that some people would have. It wasn't, you know, three quarters of the market like it seems like it is today. Right. I'm, I'm wondering if we were if we were to look to, you know, trying to do a, mo- a modern update or more data for this, you know, how how the performance of the curve would change, you know, based on some of these sort of outrageous hopping techniques that people were doing and outrageous hop loads and, and high gravities and whirlpool editions versus 10 minute editions versus you know, all these questions that people ask us like oh does it make a difference if you're if you're whirlpooling this particular way or if you add the hops in at 20 minutes um i'd be really curious to see how all that would aff- affect you know the numbers that are coming out the same yeah, it's not like it's an on or off thing it's the the, the bo- boil temperature isn't magic i mean you're a couple mm-hmm. degrees below you're still pretty much at boil temperature even if you're 10 degrees below you're still getting isomerization it, it it's not an on or off switch, and so mm-hmm. it, it, it would be interesting to do some work on different temperatures of holding hops in the whirlpool or whatever, or in a torpedo. You know, they they have all kinds of different ways where hops aren't boiled, but they're still mm-hmm. contributing bitterness. So it makes it much harder when you complicate things like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and we we had an experiment that we had our Igors do not that long ago where. We had them try comparisons of hops held at in Whirlpool at what was it, Denny? It was just 170 versus 140. I thought it was 160 and 180, but <laughs> it's a, a while back. I'd have to go look up the data on the website. Yeah, but uh, it, it was interesting to see because you had all these people saying, "Oh, well, you know, if you do the if you do this other sort of way of doing it, then it's going to be more hop oils and less volatilization and less bitterness." And I think. Uh, if I'm remembering the the solutions or the outcome correctly, it was a little bit of a mixed bag where we had some people going, oh, there's no difference. And we had other people going, well, you know, there's a, there's no difference here that I'm going to keep doing it this way. Hmm. Interesting. I, that's the, the, the getting back to consistency, you know, people have to decide on a method uh, that works for them and their brewery. That's, that's what I always try to emphasize. And again, you know, the numbers are interesting, especially if you can afford to get them analyzed. That's the best way. 
but uh, it just provides a, a benchmark, you know, a little a little comparison that you can make. You know what I always oh. say is, uh, you don't drink the numbers, you drink the beer. <laughs> oh, by the uh, way, the package with these beers for me to taste has never arrived. Oh, well, um, we'll take care of that. I'll get your address later. <laughs> Actually, actually, I can do that, Glenn. So uh, stand by when we're done here, and I'll get. Uh, actually, I'll shoot you an email later and get get a shipping address and send them down to you, and you can try it yourself. Uh, you'll have some fun nights. I, I, I honestly was teasing, but I thought the more I look at these numbers, the more thirsty I get. <laughs> well, you know it's, what? It's funny how that works. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I I would I would love to send some down to you as a, as a thank you for your time, man, uh, because I can't drink them all. <laughs> Now, by the way, I went back and I looked up our uh, Whirlpool numbers. Yeah. Uh, the experiment was actually 170 degrees Whirlpool versus 120 degrees Whirlpool. And see what the That's people got big out of it. Though. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and the argument was, you know, if you hold it at 120, you'll get better hop aroma and whatnot. And when people did the iron triangle, when people did the iron triangle, bleh, <laughs> when people did the triangle test, we had, uh, let me see, we had six different uh, panels that we kept into the numbers because one of them had a sort of a outlier effect. And of those six, three showed significance and three didn't. So it was kind of a, a, a split bag in terms of whether or not people could even tell the difference between a beer that had had hops whirlpooled at 170 versus hops whirlpooled at 120. Yeah. No, you did an ABA test where two were the same and one was different. They had to pick the two that were the same. That is correct. They had to pick the one that was different. Yeah, the one that's different. The one that was different. Okay. The inverse. Um, yeah, the inverse of it. Interesting. Plus, you have the complication of 120 being in the danger zone yeah. bacterially, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know if that's anything that uh, anybody would ever want to do as a regular thing because of that. But uh, yeah. we, we wanted to get a big spread, at least, for the test. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you, and man, I've learned a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Some good, bad. <laughs> well, and I've learned that there's actually a man behind the behind the name on the formula. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, I I learned the same thing at the homebrew festival here a couple of years ago when there was Denny sitting at one of the tables, and that we we introduced each other and. Finally, placed a face to a name. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, I was. It was great to meet you. I'm so glad you came up and introduced yourself. Uh, and since you get up this way every once in a while, uh, let me know when you're coming, uh, and I'll buy you several beers. Okay. Yeah, just make sure that <laughs> if he uh, gets you a beer, yeah, just make sure that if he gets you a beer, that he actually remembers to bring it to you. <laughs> yeah. Right. <that's> <laughs> <laughs> all right glenn thanks once again for joining us and uh i'll uh, i'll shoot you an email and get your address and send some of these beers down for you oh i would love that great thanks again man have a great day yeah you too all right bye-bye bye well you know it was really great to talk with glenn i you know you kind of think like hey you know there is actually somebody attached to that name that we all see you know and to really kind of learn a little bit about what he was thinking when he was doing the, the formulas and, you know, all the research they had access to and all the tools they had as, at his uh, disposal. So it suddenly makes sense why that formula has lasted for 20 years and is still used today. But I do think there are a couple big takeaways, uh, at least for me, I think, 
for everybody to go with. Uh, one is that that formula of his was designed for whole leaf hops and not pellets. Yeah, <laughs> that, that blew me away, man. It's like, oh, hmm, I wonder how relevant this is. Yeah. And then the other one is, of course, what I think the biggest lesson, and it plays right into that about uh, pellets versus whole, is at some point in time, you just have to kind of look at these numbers and treat them as your own relative scale. To know that on my system, doing things the way I do it, when I calculate something out that comes out to 60 IBUs, it tastes like this to me. And that this is a marker that you that you put down in, in your perceptual memory. And from that point, you swing around it. Like, I want something that's more bitter than that beer, so maybe I'll swing it up to a 70 or a 75. And you set down a new marker. I want something less bitter. Okay, I'll go for a 30. And that's really at... Even the craft beer level, uh, until you get to the really big leagues and you have all the equipment to really drive home consistency, that's a lot of what you're going to be doing with your recipe design and your brewing. So more important than anything else, consistency in terms of your practice, consistency in terms of your calculation, and then use that to drive what a 60 IBU beer means to you. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, Glenn said that he could hardly believe he was saying it, but... Basically, it's you know the the taste that counts. So uh, that's what that's what you really want to go for. Get the beer to taste the way you like it. Then say, okay, I assume these are the IBUs. So uh, something else I wanted to mention is that uh, Dana is actually a trained sensory analyst, also. Mm-hmm. So she went through these beers and tasted them, and uh, made her guess at what the IBU levels were, and. <laughs> It's way better than I would ever do. So uh, we're going to put that data up on the website also so that you can uh, see in a spreadsheet what she thought that these beers were and uh, how close they were to reality. Yeah, I think I think that will definitely be useful and kind of surprising and eye-opening. Yeah. And particularly given, given that, I mean, one of my first memories that I remember having with a pro brewer about uh, brewing and IBUs was having a conversation with John Mayer at uh, – at an AHA conference one year and he asked me about a beer I made and I said, Oh, it's this. And it comes out to like, you know, 1063 OG and 75 IBUs or actually I think I said a hundred IBUs because of the beer. And he's like, okay, so that's about 60. And I was like, what? <laughs> turns out John was right. Yeah. Well, imagine that, huh? The guy who's been brewing from over half his life knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, that, that never so, happens. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what we saw was a really wide range of uh, of results here, and we talked about it a little bit with Glenn. But I think that uh, one of the things that uh, we didn't discuss was the impact that chilling might have made. And I, you know, we really didn't talk to the brewers about how they were chilling or anything else. But it's it's possible that. Uh, some of the late hop additions contributed more bitterness than others because of the way that uh, the beer was chilled. The chilling effect might have had a chilling effect, huh? It might have, but I'm also really curious about what was going on with the brewers that we saw that were consistently low. 
Yeah, right. Because well, you know what? And and Glenn mentioned uh, boil vigor and kettle geometry as two big factors that uh, are hard to control. So, um, I guess uh, I guess what we'll have to do is uh, repeat this experiment and get uh, the most minute details about everybody's brewing process, huh? Yeah, time to measure the pH and the protein levels and the this and that. And, uh, <laughs> science is hard yeah so anyway let's just wrap this up here uh i hope you guys have uh, enjoyed these conversations and uh, get something out of this uh this experiment um you know it obviously there are no conclusive results uh but there are some interesting results that might make you consider the way you brew and uh, and and what you think is happening. Uh, if you have any questions about the experiment or the results, the interpretation, have any ideas of your own, please shoot us an email to podcast at experimentalbrew.com and give us your thoughts. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, it'll be time for this episode's edition of Ask Denny and Drew, the part of the show where we see if we're smart enough to answer your questions. We'll be right back. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-Yeast's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. Alright, and now it's time for that favorite part of the show, the ones where we try and prove that, well, maybe we actually know something. I don't know. Maybe. But, you know, I think I'm just going to hand it over to you today. You can start and answer somebody's question, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay, this one comes from Andrew Brown of Fargo, North Dakota. He says, first, great job with the podcasts. Thank you very much, Andrew. We appreciate hearing that. You've kept me company through many outdoor projects, staining a fence, and now mo- You've kept me company through many outdoor projects, staining a fence and now moving mountains of snow. My brew year's resolution is to finally get heat and water into my garage. In the past, I've tried to work around the freezing North Dakota temperatures so that I could brew on any day, not just a day when the outdoor temperature was above freezing, which is not that easy in North Dakota. Anyway, I've got a garage heater now and most of the insulation installed, but the water is causing me some confusion. I'm not going to trust that the garage always stays above freezing, so I'm planning to put a frost-proof outdoor faucet in the garage, standard building practice here in North Dakota. But I've noticed that all the outdoor faucets at the hardware store are labeled for irrigation use only, not for potable water. I found that they contain lead, and the CDC and other medical groups maintain that there is no safe level of lead consumption. I've found a lead-free, frost-proof faucet from Prayer. Their 400 series faucet comes in a lead-free version and is available on Amazon. My question is whether it's a big deal or if I'm just overly concerned. There really isn't a big price difference between the two versions, so I'm going to go with the lead-free version. 
but I couldn't find any information on this on the forums. There seems to be concern about regular garden hoses causing off flavors, but nothing on lead. Thanks for all you guys do to support the brewing community. Okay, Andrew Betty, here's my take on things. Uh, lead is definitely a good thing to avoid. So, especially since the price of the two faucets is about the same, definitely, definitely, definitely get the lead-free faucet. Most faucets that contain lead contain a very, very minute amount that is used to uh, aid in the machining of the, of the parts. Um, and there's a, a way you can remove it by pickling the parts using a combination of uh, vinegar and water. Is that right? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weak acid solution, basically. Yeah, exactly. And and that will remove the lead. Um, and uh, it's, uh, as far as I know, very effective because there's so little lead there. Although I don't know what the lead content of the faucet you're starting with is. So I would say, in general, you always want to avoid lead. If buying lead-free is the way to do that, uh, then do it because that's easy. Uh, I have a few brass parts where I have used the pickling method to remove the lead from them. And as far as I know, I'm not dead yet, so I guess it's effective. And uh, one last little thing here about hoses. Yeah, um, I think that the main problem with using a regular garden hose is the off flavors you get from it uh, more than uh, the what it's made of. But uh, definitely, I would recommend using one of the uh, white RV hoses for your brewing water. Uh, it can make a, a big difference, and uh, they're not that expensive anyway. So, Any follow-up there, Drew? Yeah, I was going to say, one, homebrewers have been using brass uh, faucets on their kettles and whatnot for years, until suddenly there was a flood of stainless steel parts on the market, so... I mean, even my old first brewing kettle, the faucet coming out of it is a three-eighths three inch butterfly brass valve. And I used that for years with seemingly very few side effects. Now, however, having said that, uh, maybe this explains some of the badness in the homebrewing community. <laughs> but yeah. also, I did, I did want to put out there, uh, since Denny and I are not uh, really cold weather people, Denny is much more a cold weather person than I am where he's brewing. I reached out to Tom Roan, who is also in Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, was the one who brought me up to the Hoppy Halloween competition this past uh, Halloween. And he said uh, his take on it was, yeah, go for the, the lead-free parts, because really that's what you want to do, uh, because it's yeah. not much of a difference. He also backs up the RV hose. But he did also point out one other concern, and it's a good one for us to mention here, since we're talking about brewing in a garage, brewing in sort of a tightly insulated space. He says, uh, aside from that, it sounds like you have a great setup in the works. Do be careful about carbon monoxide levels, as it sounds like you will have it sealed up pretty tight. Uh, and that's a very good point. Remember, our propane burners that we love to use generate a lot of carbon monoxide. So uh, you have to make sure that you are somehow venting and exchanging air otherwise that could lead to a very bad situation on your brew day and definitely get a carbon monoxide meter uh, my, my garage is not tightly sealed at all uh, but uh, i still 
put a carbon monoxide meter in it is one of the very first uh, steps when I started brewing out there. Uh, you can find one for between 25 and 50 bucks, and believe me, uh, your life is worth that much. I was going to say, here in California, I don't even think about it because here in California, we're required to have them. Yeah, right. So I, I have three here. I have one in my back house. I have one in the, in the garage slash brewery, and I have one in the main house. So yeah, they're cheap insurance. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't have any any uh, gas going on anywhere, so I don't really need one other than in the garage. So I just uh, I picked one up at my local home improvement store, plugged it in uh, once a month. I run the test cycle on it to make sure it's still okay, and uh, it, it's only gone off once, and that was when I had like uh, five people all brewing in my garage. So <laughs> it was pretty insane in there, anyway. Okay, I'm buddy, you, you have get the five next people question. in your county. <laughs> yeah, right. What? All right. So our next question comes from Brandon from West Virginia, who sent this in uh, via Reddit, and it says, "Hi, Drew. I know you're a big proponent on open ferment uh, for saisons using WLP five sixty five to speed up the fermentation process. I've read similar complaints about WLP four hundred being slow." and was wondering if it's slow for the same reason the Saison yeast is, and if an open ferment would be beneficial to this yeast as well. Thanks, and thanks for the podcast, too. WLP400 is White Lab's Belgian Whitbeer yeast. Now, is it? could it possibly have the same issues that we see with Saison strains? Well, since I don't rightly know what the issue is with Saisons that seems to be solved by open fermentation, I can't say if it's the exact same cause. But I will say... I think most Belgian strains do very, very well with open fermentation. I think most ale strains, period, do well with open fermentation. So having said that, if people are seeing a stall with uh, the Whitbeer yeast that are out there, I suspect, given that, you know, for ever and ever, basically until the Nathan fermenter came around in the late 20s, people used open fermentation for all these yeast strains. So I would, I would guess that they are probably still well acclimatized to the idea of open fermentation. And like I said, doing open fermentation as a home brewer is a relatively simple thing. All you have to do is, you know, cover your fermenter with foil. I like to sanitize it. Denny has great faith that the industrial machines have stayed sanitary. Yeah. Uh, but just slap foil over the top of your carboy, over the over the top of the airlock hole in the bucket, on over the PRV if you're fermenting in a keg, and let it ride. The one thing that you do have to do is make sure that you're paying attention to when your croissant falls, and when you do, when you see that happening, that's when you close it up and put it under your airlock. So, because at that point in time, you're no longer actively evolving CO2, so you lose some of your protection. So, the best way to do it is exactly that. So, by all means, I would say give it a shot with WLP 400 and see if that fixes your problems. Uh, I suspect it probably will. I suspect also I think it gives better flavor. Can I prove that? Not until we get the Igors to do it. What about you, Denny? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think it comes down to uh, we don't really know, but it makes sense and it's worth a try. Well, there you go. You know, all right. So those are our questions for the week. And, you know, as always, if you have questions that you want to ask, uh, things that we haven't answered so far, uh, please make sure that you get your questions into us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. That's questions at experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can also call and leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1ALE. That's 1253-1ALE. Uh, if you leave us a recording, who knows, you might actually hear your voice in this podcast. And don't forget, in just a few more episodes, episode 36, 
we'll be doing an all Q&A show. So we're going to need your questions. So feel free to get them in and reach out to us and we'll see what we can do. And remember, the more time you give us on a question, the more chances that we have to actually get it right by doing some, oh, I don't know, research. Research? Whoa, that's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to actually have to put aside our prejudices and learn something, huh? Darn. <laughs> Okay, our quick tip this week comes from uh, one of you guys. We had it sent in by a listener, and Drew, I'll let you take it from there. Our quick tip of the week arrived in the email box at podcastatexperimentalbrew.com from Ron Groschholz. And Ron, if I just butchered your last name, my apologies. That should just be a standing disclaimer, I think, for the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. I recently found your podcast and have been listening as much as possible during my short commute home from work. Well, if it's a short commute, they're going to be going for a while. Uh, the last episode that I listened to ended with a tip from Denny. I think that this segment is a really cool part of the show. I thought of a tip that I'd like to share with you after running into a small problem during my last brew day. And this is very, very appropriate given the Fargo question that we just had. Having brewed during cold weather before, I knew that this can present some challenges. Through these challenges, I've learned to bring propane tanks and chilling water hoses inside a few days prior to brewing to thaw out. During my last session, I prepared by doing these things, but I failed to winterize the hose bib. When it came time to chill the wort, I attached the hose to the bib, but the valve was frozen. I had to scramble to figure out an alternate water source, which ended up being the water supply for the washing machine. Everything worked out, but it added some unnecessary stress to my brew day, as I nearly missed kickoff. And you can't nearly miss kickoff during the playoffs. <laughs> Come on. Thanks for doing what you do, and keep the podcast coming. So in other words, what Ron is suggesting is, hey, don't forget... Everything can freeze during the winter, and that includes your chilling water source. So figure out a way to keep it warm. I know some people out there will actually use a hair dryer, or if you're more industrious or an industrial, a heat gun. Uh, there are other ways of doing, but yeah, you definitely have to make sure that you keep everything warm. I know there are lots of brewers out there who, during a cold outside brew day, will also put their propane tanks in buckets of warm water to keep them from freezing up. As propane goes out the tank, the pressure drops, and that actually causes the tanks to get colder. And if you're already in cold weather, that can actually cause your propane to freeze. So the water is a perfect thing to do. And in this particular case, I like the idea of dragging things in as long as you're not worried about your propane tanks possibly exploding your house and destroying <laughs> everything that you love and preciously own. Yeah, really, that, uh, that can really put a damper on your brew day. Well, maybe you just leave them in the muckroom. <laughs> right. So there's your quick tip for the week from uh, one of our listeners, Ron. Thank you, Ron. And remember, if you have a suggestion for a quick tip of the week, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Cool, man. So the, the tip basically is plan ahead. Well, yeah, make sure, make sure that you remember everything can freeze. So have a way to deal with it. And chilling water is no different. Yep, that's right. So uh, enough of this beer stuff. Uh, you've got our uh, something other than beer this week. Yeah, so I'm not going to YouTube or a podcast this week. Wow. People might be shocked. I know. It's no surprise that Denny and I are both also big fans of cooking and big fans of flavor and flavor exploration and trying to understand, you know, exactly how the palate works and, uh, you know, where things develop. And I recently stumbled across a, a new book. It came out uh, la late last year from Sarah Lohman called Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Now, Sarah Lohman is a writer in New York, but she actually got uh, her start as a kid in the Central Valley of Ohio, working as a historical reenactor at one of those living museum villages, like the Genesee Village that we talked about that James Townsend's son visited a few episodes back. And so she learned to do old-style American cooking. And over the years, 
grew into this sort of passion project of teaching people old flavors and how things have developed over time. So this book is really, really cool. What she did was a whole bunch of uh, recipe analysis from different cookbooks of different periods to try and find out when new flavors appeared in American cuisine. And so she kicks it off by cho choosing eight different uh, flavors in order that they appeared in American cuisine. Black pepper, vanilla, curry powder, chili powder, soy sauce, garlic, MSG, and finally uh, closing off with sriracha. So using these eight flavors to actually like from word analysis and everything else to show changes in American cuisine. Like for instance, I had never realized uh, the whole story behind vanilla where I, I had known that vanilla was incredibly expensive at one point and they couldn't really figure out how to uh, cultivate it. And it was kind of a secret. Uh, I didn't uh, remember the story that it was the, the secret was cracked by a Madagascar slave uh, child who figured out how to artificially pollinate the vanilla orchid. And suddenly vanilla became cheap. So in the early period of American cooking, you don't see vanilla at all. You see rose water or orange water. That was the flavoring they used. And nowadays you think about vanilla, vanilla is one of the most ubiquitous things that we have. So really great stuff in this book, really fascinating stories and really interesting to see just how you can analyze and see trends in American cooking and how that actually influences things and how you can see like the rise of, you know, Asian elements into our cooking. And finally, of course, the uh, ever-present uh, bottle of sriracha. I have two of them. <laughs> Only two? Uh, I love this stuff. Only two. I, <laughs> uh, well, one of them's for my keychain. The other one's for the... Oh, wait, no, I have one at work, too. Uh -huh. So I have three. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, again, so that is... That is uh, Sarah Lohman's Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. We'll link it in the podcast notes. Really highly recommend reading it because it really can kind of help sort of spur that creativity and, and thinking about how things have changed over time. Very cool concept. Uh, you know, I, I really like it. That's a, a great idea. I'm going to have to uh, dig that one up. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. And it, she's got a great writing style. It's super breezy and super fun to read. So there you go. There's your, uh, your something other than beer for the week. Uh, Denny, I guess, uh, I guess that means we're done. Yeah, man, that pretty much uh, wraps things up for the week. So we want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook, and uh, Drew hangs out a lot of times on the Reddit homebrewing forum, and I'm on a whole, whole bunch of other homebrew forums, so you can find us there. You can ask us questions. You can make fun of us, uh, whatever you like. Uh, you can always email us to suggest uh, topics, ask questions, uh, send in a recipe, or talk about experiments, or even just rant and rave by emailing us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can get a hold of each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until uh, the next episode, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. And hey, don't forget, we got that new podcast that's coming out as well, The Brew Files. So go listen to that. And hey, support our charity, the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, via Patreon. You know you want to do it. It's just a buck for the dogs. <laughs> that's right. And we'll see you uh, on one episode or the other next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.